Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible, first or Acts chapter 18. I apologize. Acts chapter 18. Although it would be wise to keep your finger maybe or keep your hand on 1 Corinthians, we're going to go ahead and begin our exposition through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians this morning. So, um, but we need to start at Acts 18 as will become apparent in just a moment. When we're through, as always, if you have a question or comment about what we have sung or said or read this morning, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions or listen to your comment when our time together is through. So we're going to read from Acts 18, the first 18 verses, and page 786 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his blessing. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians were her, who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him to court. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, Settle the matter yourselves, and I will not be a judge of these such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Galileo showed no concern whatever. Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow, bow together and seek the help that we need from our gracious God. Father, now we... We come to you, having sung to you, expecting you, Father, to teach us through your word. Help us to remember, as the days go by, that everything that we need for our moment-to-moment existence comes from you and you alone. And help us to be glad that everything that was needed to call us out of darkness, out of despair, being alienated from you and others in ourselves, in our sin, in Christ, you did. So, Father, if we ask the question, where would we be without you? The answer is very, very plain. We'd be lost 
dead, still in our sins, under your wrath, filled with pride and without a speck of hope at all. So an occasion like this, in song, in scripture, in preaching, in prayer, it reminds us here and now that the Lord's day makes absolute sense. And so, Father, help us to never take these occasions lightly or indifferently. And please create in all of us a sensible expectation of what you would do as we work through 1 Corinthians and what we need from you, God, as we work through 1 Corinthians. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom you are conforming all of us who belong to you into. And so we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. So it's been quite a few years ago when a couple of business gurus wrote the book In Search of Excellence. I read the book, believe it or not, when I was 19 years old. And if you read the book, you will know that these men um, interviewed a whole host of different companies that were diverse in what they manufactured or distributed but had achieved some level of success in whatever their respective industries were. Now, I only remember two things about the book. One, my father, who I just missed awful this week, my father uh, was gracious enough to, to buy the book for me to read. That's one thing. And the second thing is at the end of the book, the, the writer makes a list of what they determined made these companies so successful, even though they were in different places and they were doing different things. And one of the things, in fact, the only thing I really remember about the list was when the authors wrote this, that without exception, these companies had endeavored to do the basics well most of the time. Okay? These companies that they interviewed had endeavored to do the basics well most of the time. Now, if you think about that, there's no great brilliance in that strategy. This is true in just about everything we do. It's true in a ma- marriage. It's true in a home. It's, it's true in a tennis swing. It's true in making an omelet. And it's certainly true for the people of God in the life of his church. It's, it's one of my continuous prayers for myself and for all of us here that, that God will enable us all to do the basics well most of the time. So let's just think about the basics for a moment. The basics. Parents teaching our kids the Bible at home. The basics. Praying together regularly. Husband and wife, uh, parents and kids Together, the basics, the the Lord's Prayer, the basics, uh, manners in-house and outside of the house, basics, public evangelism, basics, public worship, the basics, corporate prayer, basics, keeping first things first, worship, instruction, service, relationships, that's basic, sharing, caring, giving our very lives to each other and to the community for the glory of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, it's Christian basics. Now, this church in Corinth, which was established by the Apostle Paul himself, had lost sight of the basics. Luke records for us here, and you can see it in your Bible there, verse 7 of chapter 18, that Paul, after he was rejected by the Jews for the message of the cross, he went right next door from the synagogue to the house of Titius Justus. And as a result of the Spirit of God moving graciously, verse 8, many of the people who heard Paul believed and were baptized and added to the church. And there you go again. Just another beautiful basic pattern. Gospel preached, people believed, believers baptized, church added to. Basics. 
Paul then stays in Corinthians, uh, Corinth excuse me, for a year and a half teaching the Bible, verse 11, the Word of God, in other words, teaching them the basics. So he didn't teach them any novel concept. He didn't come with any new words from the Spirit, but he comes to them as he consistently teaches them constrained by the Word of God. So he teaches them, as we're going to discover, the, the basic message of the cross. However, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Roughly two, two and a half, three years later, he's writing to a church that has drifted far, far, far away from the basics. Everything started out very nicely, but within a relatively short period of time, things began to go very badly. So all kinds of strange teachings and doctrines and novel ideas entered the church. Beliefs and patterns of behavior began to be accepted into the church as good and true and right when they were bad and a lie and wrong. And oftentimes when any church has drifted from the cross, drifted from the basics, and they come to a place of having believed something bad and a lie and wrong as now something good and true and right, when the good and true and right comes to them, they often will perceive it, at least initially, to be a bad and a lie and wrong. Why? Well, ultimately, it is because they have gotten to the place, having drifted so far from the basics, so that what is true and good and right doesn't fit their determined way of life anymore, and then it begins to appear to them, and it feels to them as bad and a lie and wrong. And such is the case in Corinth. And 18 years of pastoral experience teaches me such is the case when you do expository preaching. Back to Corinth. The church thought they were, that there was something beyond Jesus Christ and him crucified, that they, they thought that anything was fine to do as long as it worked for you, and they thought that Paul wasn't either A, telling them this, or B, worse, Paul didn't know this, but perhaps someone else did. And so many of the teachers that arrived in Corinth, these were the false teachers, they played on that foolishness, just like now teachers play on the fact that we live in between the times, that things will never be absolutely perfect on earth, even though they promise that they can fix it so that things will be perfect on earth if we just listen to them and buy their book and on and on and on. And these teachers were not concerned anymore about the revelation from God that he had given finally and fully in Jesus and in his word, and these teachers were off into speculation and personal exaltation, which meant this. Feel good talks to the masses tailored to their personal taste. Subsequently, what you have in the church in Corinth is division. People then, as people now think to themselves, what does all this Jesus stuff and cross stuff matter? Surely the key to life is what I do and how I feel and how satisfied I am. Surely those are the things that matter most. And belief in the cross, relying on the cross, having our whole life being fashioned by the cross, well, that's kind of a side issue. It's important, but it's not very important because you know we can compartmentalize our behavior and our convictions in such a way that we can put that, that, that thing there and that thing there and then never the two should meet. And that was foolishness then in, in first century Corinth and it's foolishness now. Because when you turn to the Bible, the Bible makes it very, very clear. What we believe will always, always work itself out in how we behave. What we don't believe will always work itself out in what we do not do in our behavior. 
And it becomes very, very obvious when you just begin to read through the whole of 1 Corinthians and you take kind of a bird's eye view on the church that Paul writes to, the church that he established. Because the church in, 1 Cor- in Corinth is an absolute total mess. It was small, but it was full of factions. Everything was downgraded to the place of personality. I follow him. I don't follow them. I like them. I don't like him. There was snobbery in the church. They couldn't even come to something as basic as communion without selfishness and snobbery and division and just flat out rude behavior. So your social group or your own personal convictions determine who you would and would not sit with over the communion common meal, which was declaring to them that at the cross, everyone is equal. So there was snobbery and they had a no good hold on theology. There was uncertainty about what they ought to believe. And the consequence of that was laxity and mistaken liberty and understanding how they ought to behave. They, they believed wrong, so they behaved wrong. And you only have to read into a few chapters of the letter to learn that they were way, way out of line, especially in matters of morality. Snobbery, no hold on theology, uh, large measures of immorality, and the church was unruly. One of the things that we're going to discover as we work through 1 Corinthians is that the church had some kind of informal democracy set up. And as a result, they always challenged every form of authority. That was their first instinct, not least of all, their relentless challenge to everything the Apostle Paul, who was sent by Christ, by the will of God, to teach them. So they were always on his back. You know, but what did they care? Their line of thinking said, we're free to do what we like. And so you know how this works. Money was absolutely fantastic in Corinth. Business was fantastic. There was relative peace. And so no man is going to tell me what to do or not to do in my church. But of course, that was much of the problem. It wasn't their church. Just like this isn't our church. In fact, Paul tells them, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, I'm writing to the church of God in Corinth. It is the Lord Jesus Christ's church. He purchased all churches with his blood. So yes, Jesus is our friend, but he's also our king. And every Christian would do well to be careful in those distinctions. Also, the church lacked humility. Humility and consideration of each other. And this becomes public knowledge as as Christians were suing other Christians, dragging them in front of the local magistrate, thereby taking the confusion that was in the church and just peppering it all over the community. So people would say, well, I thought you Christians were to love one another. And now you're suing each other. So in general terms, when it comes to spirituality, this was a church that was fascinated with the flamboyant and the spectacular They could not follow the well-tested path of love and grounded truth. They couldn't deal with the basics. If you like, they couldn't sit sit still and listen because in their spiritual arrogance, they had the spiritual equivalent of the wiggles. And so if we had to summarize this, we could say that this was absolutely the, the fellowship of confusion. Absolute arrogance. And as you think about this, in one sense, this is no different than the average church in the West. So what we have to do is we consider ourselves, we we have to come to the sensible conclusion that these problems that were in Corinth, they're not unique to Corinth. They are part and parcel of every church in varying degrees. And so we have to be humble enough 
as we look into the dirt-revealing mirror of God's Word to admit this. So the problems here are not unique to Corinth. These problems are not just a first-century problem. They're a 21st-century problem. And so as you, as you think about the church in Corinth, as you think about what I told you about the horrible way that it existed, you have to say, you know, what a church. What a church. What a perfect mess. The perfect church to leave. The perfect church to find fault with. The perfect church to determine this is not where we need to be. It didn't have perfect leaders. It didn't have a perfect congregation. It didn't have a perfect strategy. It didn't have a perfect structure. It was just a flat-out imperfect church. But, and listen very, very carefully because this is very, very basic. It was Jesus Christ's church. Do you see this? It was Jesus Christ's church. He died so that those rascals there, and those of you like me who are rascals here, could come together in Christ in community, that as messed up as they were, Jesus died for the church. So as Paul begins his letter, if you want to just flip back maybe to 1 Corinthians for a moment, you'll see that Paul immediately lets grace abound in the letter. Verse 4, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. I always thank God for you because of the grace given you in Christ Jesus. So you see, how could Paul, how could Paul not thank God for a church that was in great era, well, it was Christ's church. Verse 2, the church of God. It was a church which was given grace by God through Christ, which means, and again, this is very, very basic. It's very basic to our own understanding of how we are to view each other. When Paul thinks of them, he has this kind of lovely and true and wonderfully appealing line of thought. Verse 2, I thank God for you, Because the grace given you in Jesus. You say, well, what grace? Well, the grace that Jesus suffered in our place. Jesus took our sin. He died our death. He paid our price. So that we could be brought into the church. Be brought into his family. Because God's grace here, and never ever forget this, is attached to, it's absolutely contingent on the cross. If there's no cross, there is no salvation. And there is no grace. And there is no church. Therefore, what Paul is simply saying, and and this is it, he could not think about them as bad as they were without thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he couldn't think about them without thinking about Christ. And there you go. There you go. That will make for unity. I can't think about you without thinking about him. And you shouldn't be able to think about us, me, the leaders, without thinking about him. And I want you to see how attractive and how basic that can be. The babies from the 1970s. There was a radio station local that was playing 70s songs all weekend long. It had this line, the song. Every time I think of you, it always turns out good. That's Paul when he thinks about the church. Now again, how attractive is that to dis, dis dismantle disunity in the church. I can't think about you without thinking about Christ bearing our sins in his body on a tree. It's attractive and it's needed. If the Christian mind is locked in way too much on the now and the self, then much of what you can expect is what happened in Corinth. And you will not get a letter that begins with, I thank God for you. 
But rather you might get a letter that says, I am mad at you. And one of the things we're going to discover in just a moment is that the church in its existence is an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle that there even was a church in Corinth in the first place. Corinth as a city was a den of iniquity. Every imaginable, imaginable sin, namely sexual sin, was the norm in Corinthian life. In fact, the verb to Corinthianize in the Greek, it means to be sexually loosed. So one of my best friends in Austin, Texas, he's a convicted felon, a former drug user and dealer, a former alcoholic, a former almost everything illegal. And we are, we became and we are great friends. In fact, when we talk on the phone now, we always end our conversation saying, hey, I love you, and hey, I miss you. Now, how can that happen? You know, Harry Milktoast here and, and Mr. <laughs> Mr. Street Guy. How does that happen? We belong to Jesus Christ. And we both got to Jesus Christ the same way. Verse 4b, 1 Corinthians 1, his grace given in Jesus. And when you and I keep that before us, when we keep that basic truth before us and, and not turn Christianity into, you know, a competition or an exercise prog a program, who's the best, who's the brightest, who's the strongest, when we keep the cross before us, then unity will blossom in Christ's church. So you see, this is an exciting letter. It's a very helpful letter. It's very, very relevant. And we should pray as we begin this that God would just open up our hearts so that he would teach us from it and pray that God will transform our lives as we work out the scriptures in this letter. Okay, so whenever you begin an epistle, you have to do it right. Proper interpretation demands that you find out about the location and you found, find out about the culture and so on. You get behind the text before you get out in front of the text. So what we're going to do is in the remaining time is just work through things very quickly. So look up, think, uh, first of all, location. You can look in your worship folder, I was trying to say. So the city of Corinth was located in the southern part of Greece. If this helps you, to Corinth's west is the nation of Italy. To her east is the nation of Turkey. Uh, south, southeastern Europe would be helpful. That's, that's right, yes. Corinth was an isthmus. An isthmus, if you don't know, is a narrow strip of land connecting two larger land areas, usually uh, with water on either side. And so Corinth was a two-harbor or two-port city with just a four-mile-wide stretch of land. In about 146 BC, the city was overrun by the Romans and completely ruined. However, about 100 years later, Julius Caesar, who was not just bright militarily, but pretty clever economically, decided that Corinth was the place to be. And so sometime before the Ides of March, that's for my daughter, Lindsay, who's reading Julius Caesar now. Before the Ides of March, he established a colony and he invested heavily in it. And it turned out that Caesar was right. Corinth became a two-port city. It was the place to be. If you had to go north or south, you had to go through Corinth. If you had to go east or west, you needed to go through Corinth for safety and economic sustainability. So I want you to get this picture in your mind of a hot spot of a city. Its trade and travel is just excelling. Carpets and spices and wools and exotic materials and food all through Corinth. It's like a mall turned inside out, if you would. It was a commercial hub. And all this happened within a relatively short period of time. It was a hotbed of life, of power, and passion. And so Paul walks into this thriving city with hard, aggressive, immoral people with a population, if you can believe it or not, of over 600,000 
uh, individuals at its, at its apex. So as you think about this, it should be no surprise to you that when Paul writes, this is in two, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, that when he first came to the city, he came to them in weakness and fear and much trembling. So when Paul came to Corinth, he had no strength. He came in panic with the shakes. Now, that's not false humility, and that's not empty rhetoric. This is fact. When Paul went there, the mighty apostle Paul, I'm frail, I'm weak, and I have the shakes. You want to say, welcome to pastoral ministry. I get the shakes all the time. Why do I get the shakes? Terrified. Terrified of the task. Terrified of everything. And so was Paul. So that's number one. That's location. Okay, then what about the culture? Remember behind the text before we get out in front of the text. Well, it was said that if, if you want to meet everyone in the world, go to Corinth. Corinth was the vanity fair of the ancient world, the Hong Kong, the New York City of the ancient world. It was a melting pot of creeds and peoples and language, Greeks, Latin, Syrians, Jews, Asiatics, the whole world, it seemed, intersected in Corinth. If you've ever flown Delta Airlines, you know that most of the time you either have to go through Atlanta or through Utah. Or sometimes through Dallas. Those are their hubs. Same with Corinth. Corinth was one of the hubs of the ancient world. Okay, so there's tons of money. There's tons of economic viability. What did that culture create? Could mom and dad and the kids take a nice leisurely stroll by the sea? No, they couldn't. Corinth was a hot bed. Literally a hot bed. In fact, a bed could have been the symbol of the city. Adultery, fornication... Uh, Pornia was the norm in Corinth. You see, the city was dominated by a hill almost 2,000 feet high. At the top of the hill was a temple, the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And it had, excuse me, 1,000 priestess. These priestess did their business by day and by night. They roamed the streets as temple prostitutes. And at the base of the hill was another temple, the temple to Apollo. And this temple was not filled with female bodies, but male bodies. So this temple became the center of all kinds of deviant, homosexual activity in Corinth. So every source, biblical or not biblical, says this. Corinth was a dirty place filled with dirty minds and dirty ideals and dirty ideas. So you're going like, wonderful, glad we're not in Corinth. A while back, I heard a conversation by pure accident in a, in a place. One, one person was saying to the other, I was with person X and we did Y. And the person said, what about your spouse? The reply came, what about them? Ha, ha, ha. And they then talked about how they were taking vodka and sneaking it into their workplace. I wasn't in Corinth. I was in Cohasset. And on the World Wide Web, you can see the whole wide world. You can see wonderful things. And you can see evil things. Things that might make the average first century Corinthian blush. I mean, who could honestly doubt we we live now in a hyper-sexual world. Okay, that was culture. Location, culture. And this, by the way, when I lived in Austin, Texas, a really large city in itself, I, I did... Street ministry. I can identify with Paul on a very, 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 very small level. I was scared all the time. There were male and female prostitutes there. There were drug dealers. There were criminals and just mean people looking for a fight. 
And I would take to them Jesus Christ on the streets. And sometimes it went well, and, and most of the time, and honestly, it went horrible. But see, Paul had no choice. We have no choice. Great commission. Jesus sent Paul there. Jesus sent us here. The basics. The message of the cross to a dying world. Same mission. We all have the same mission. If we don't think we have the same mission, then that can bring division. That what was happening in Corinth. Location, culture, finally strategy. We need to move quickly. And so you want to talk about the basics. What, what was Paul's strategy? Okay, Paul, what's your big plan to win a city to Jesus Christ? What was the strategy? Well, what was the strategy of one of the, if not the greatest, most fruitful servant of Jesus Christ that ever walked this earth? What, what was his divine strategy, right? Because he was sent by Jesus Christ by the will of God. So this is God's strategy. What, what is the strategy? Well, you can look on your notes. You can summarize it in two points. Very clear, you would never be mistaken about this. Paul preached the word, Paul plant the church. That's his strategy. Preach the word, plant the church. That's it, that's it. You know, could, could the most difficult task in the world to do, seeing people one to Christ, could it not be any easier to understand how to do? So you can see there in your Bible, verse 1 of Acts 18, Paul arrives in Corinth after this. Do you see that phrase there, after this? So if you have any curiosity at all, you want to be a good student of God's word, you you want to know the question. After you read after this, you have to ask, after what? Well, let me tell you after what. Paul arrives in Corinth after Paul received a total beatdown in Macedonia, after he received another beatdown to a bloody pulp thrown in the streets in Lystra, after he comes to Philippi, he meets with some success, but he's smashed by a radical crowd, After he went to Thessalonica and Berea and the same things happened, chased, riots, and the such. After he goes to Athens, be in trouble with the fact that the city was religious, but it wasn't Christian, which sent him to public evangelism. After all that, Paul comes to Corinth, shaking in his boots as a middle-aged, beat-down man, literally and figuratively, with a strategy that, dare I say, that many a modern mission organization would say, that's not going to work. Can't can't you see someone saying to Paul, Paul, you're taking a beating here. Uh, Let's change your strategy. Paul would say, I can't. They would say, why not? It's Christ's strategy. He gave it to me. He told me I would suffer. He told me that people would hate me because of him. He told me to preach the word and plant the church. And it's no different than any of us here. So Paul walks into Corinth all alone, and, and then you get, begin to see the soft pillow of God's providence. Paul, how are you going to establish the, the strategy? Well, look at verse 2. All of a sudden, you presumably after Paul talks to Jesus and say, I'm here, help me. Verse 2, he meets with Aquila. They're both into tents. That's one. Paul plus Aquila is two. Aquila is married. Her name is Priscilla. Acts chapter 18, verse 26. They're both followers of Christ. So now you have three. You have Paul, and you have Aquila, and you have Priscilla. A trio of faith because God is in control. The couple invites Paul to their home. And by God's mercy, verse 5, Paul's ministry team, Silas and Timothy, arrive from Macedonia bearing gifts. So are you with me? One man all alone comes to Corinth shaking in his boots, but he's God's man. And with a sufficient, within a sufficient period of time, one becomes two, two becomes three, and three becomes five. 
And from that point on, it is on. Paul can stop making tents. He can take all his energies now and do what God called him to do. Preach the word. Preach and teach the word of God and see the church of Corinth established. Verse 4, preaching Christ, reasoning and persuading to see unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, establishing the truth in the church, teaching them the word of God so that the church can worship and serve and talk to people and preach and teach others to see unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ as they advance the message of the cross. So, so the point is, they begin with five. Five was Team Corinth. Okay, Paul, what's your strategy? There is almost 600,000 people in Corinth. And there's five of you. What's your strategy? Well, I'm going to preach the word. And then I'm going to plant the church. Because the church is going to learn, just like this church hopefully knows, one of the reasons that we gather is so that we can scatter. And so just let me just close with this. I want you to see God's providential hand in all of this. The, the meeting of the couple, right? Because the couple was ordered out of Rome, verse 2b, along with all Jews by Claudius. Claudius was king. What he did for evil, God meant for good. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. The rejection of the Jews of the synagogue. Paul did what he was supposed to do. Go to the Jews first. Verse 6, now they say no. He shakes off the dust and says, I gave you everything you needed and you rejected me. I don't want your dust. I'm gone. The place next door, Titius Justice. The next door, uh, next door to the synagogue is a church house. It's a McDonald's strategy. The McDonald's strategy is, is what Wendy's followed for many, many years. The, the hamburger place, Wendy's. So Wendy's determined that wherever McDonald's is, we're going to build where McDonald's is. We'll let them spend the money doing the research. We'll let them spend the money doing all the, the tests. And we'll just follow McDonald's. So right next door to the synagogue is their competition in a very real sense. The Church of Jesus Christ in-house. And what do you know? The only, uh, only convert's name that we have initially is Crispus, the Jewish synagogue leader. So you have the synagogue leader himself, the most, I would say, the most unlikely guy coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He got it. He knew Paul was serious. The, hey, there's a difference between what you are teaching in your synagogue and what I'm saying by the will of God. There's a difference. And until the church of Jesus Christ is serious about this, that yes, there's a difference between morality and Christianity. There is a difference between niceness and Christianity, between religion and Christianity. There's a difference between a good marriage and a Christian marriage, between a good family and a Christian family, between a good life and a Christian life. Until we establish that there is something different, the world will have no reason at all to listen to us. And by the way, Sosthenes, who took Crispus' place as a synagogue leader, he became a Christian too. So 1964, Cambridge University, the Humanist Society was at their height of popularity. The 60s were feeding the lines of thinking that the humanists at Cambridge were just living large in. The university ministry that year determined that they were going to pray for the most unlikely converts, namely the president of the universe humanist society. And guess what? The president of the university's humanist society becomes a Christian. So they had to call a special meeting because this kind of thing never happened before. And at the meeting, they appointed a successor and praise God within three weeks, the success, his successor becomes a Christian too. Loved ones, does not 
that encourage you. That is so, so basic. We bring those who are outside of Christ to the throne of God's grace and we lay hold of them for Jesus' sake. And though it might take days and weeks and months and years, we continue on. And that is so, so basic. We got to stop. Time to go. Same approach. Different city. Same strategy. What are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm preaching the word of God. And, and I'm establishing this church. Preach the word. Establish the church. Okay, because where did all this start? Well, it started with God sending Christ, who sent Paul, with the message of the cross to establish the church. Now, loved ones, that is so, so basic. So basic, but so easy. God, forgive us. So easy to ignore, to change, or to value. More to say. We'll have to wait till next time. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your mercy. And we pray that you enable us week by week to work through this text, learning from you as you teach us in the power of the Holy Spirit through the voice of a mere man. We, we hope for and plan for, God, exceptional lessons so that we can become more like Jesus and in, in a real sense more like Paul as we live out the days you've given us in this city, in this town, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours today, both now and forevermore. Amen.